0: The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM KKFI Midcoast Radio Project or its staff and volunteers. <laughs> goes out to you today for listening to Eco Radio KC on 90.1 FM KKFI Kansas City Community Radio this is a locally made exploration into positive solutions to some of today's ecological challenges for all of us working to create a healthier future for our communities and for the world you live in Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. My name is Darnell. Today, host Terry Wilkie will speak with her guest, Courtney Masterson, ecologist and executive director of Native Lands Restoration Collaborative, aka Native Lands LCC. Courtney Masterson will reflect on her path to creating a life affirming career in her community of Lawrence, Kansas, and beyond. Inspired by her love for the prairie and people, uniting the two for a healthier world and brighter future. She has given regular prairie walks on pristine pieces of prairie for several years, and hopefully for many more years. Our urban areas are growing rapidly, and development changes the face of the city every day. People struggle to connect with nature for many reasons. Loss of natural areas, economic instability and accessibility, to name a few. In just the last 200 years, we've lost over 95% of the tall grass prairie that once dominated the Midwestern landscape. On April 27, 2023, city employees of Lawrence, Kansas Park and Recreation Department sprayed herbicide on a five-acre stretch of native prairie behind a prairie park nature center. The herbicide has done a very good job of killing all of the plants. Certainly early native prairie blooming plants were destroyed. Rather than protect that piece of prairie, Courtney Masterson is actively engaged on a restoration of the damaged prairie plant life. Courtney will tell the tale. We at Eco Radio are glad to encourage awareness and protection of our world. Our goal is to assure our listeners are aware of how we can create a sustainable present for a sustainable future. This will be a great radio hour. Now, our show.
1: So I'm Terry Wilkie, and am I lucky, I'll tell you listeners, I have been thinking for a while how wonderful it would be to have Courtney Masterson on ECO Radio. Courtney, I think the intro did a very good job of uh, explaining who you are and what you did, but I was looking at some written thing that gave the backstory about your days in an office so would, yeah. you, would you pick up there and tell our listeners, so were you, you, you weren't born into the prairie in other words, correct?
2: I wasn't. I wasn't that lucky. Um, <laughs> I visited Kansas quite a bit as a, as a kid. My mother's family was here, but I grew up on the coast. My mom was in the Navy. Um, I didn't start um, visiting prairie and appreciating what prairie was until I was in college. Um, and I, it was my volunteer work with Kansas City Wildlands uh, to restore and protect native landscapes uh, when I was a student in Kansas City that led me to this career.
1: To explain that to me. So, sure. for example, so you're sitting in an office and <laughs> right. what, you're looking out the window at
2: prairie or weekends oh, you know, to the prairie or... Um, That's a good question, I I was actually an artist, a photographer for uh, my first profession and I went to college and took several classes in um, photography and and various forms of art and I was working an office job just to pay for school and um, I started working as an artist professionally and my work got very environmentally charged. And heavy, um, a little bit dark, <laughs> um, certainly not uh, what your typical consumer of art would want. Uh, so I decided to go back to school so that I could make art for myself rather than for other folks. And uh, given that the theme of my art was often environmental, I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna go be an environmental scientist. I had no idea what <laughs> what that meant. Um, and tell, tell uh, the listeners, what year is that? I mean a person couldn't oh get- wow an environmental yeah. science
1: degree in the 60s, 70s, it w- was it the <laughs> 80s, right?
2: No, gosh. <laughs> I, I um I got my first science degree in um let's see. I got some degrees at UMKC that I got uh, in 2012, and then I, I went to KU from there, and I finished up at KU in 2016. Um, and before all of that was my art studies. So right. I, I was in college for a long time. <laughs> sure. A person historically
1: could get a botany degree. Yeah, not anymore. A degree,
0: <laughs> an right.
1: agronomy degree. I studied agronomy, and the heck, that was in the early 80s. And so what they taught us was weed management and uh, soils. Now, soils were more interesting because that's where science told agronomy students, when you knife the soil, like with a disc or a plow, that breaks the colloids. There are soil colloids, which is a kind of a chemical reaction that causes soil to clump. And so mm-hmm. science knew in the early 80s, and when you cut it with a disc or any kind of blade, a plow, that just breaks it and it turns it to dust. It, it won't clump right. your your soil, your dirt. But at the time, I, I'm like you. I, I didn't grow up on a farm. I I was calling it dirt, I, and maybe farmers still do call it dirt. But <laughs> but anyway, you began an environmental science um degree. I did. What are your degrees? Tell us what you have.
2: Um, I have biological sciences and chemistry from UMKC and at KU, um, ecology and evolutionary biology. Um, and that's where they nest us, ecologists at KU. <laughs> um, and uh, there, there, you're right, there wasn't a botany degree at KU when I started going there. I just latched on to every botanist I ever met and And sort of forced myself into their tutelage um i've been very lucky to to know a lot of kind botanists who are giving of their knowledge and experience
1: okay so what was your first job from being an artist how did you change did you how did i yeah did you work for like one time i had a job for um Applied Ecological Services, which is a yeah. greenhouse in Baldwin. I'm going to tell you what, that's, that's a remarkable place. Did you have it any is. kind of job like that?
2: No. Yeah, my first job in this field, um, I, sort, I worked for Bridging the Gap um, out of grad school. Actually, I was still in grad school um, managing a grant program. For uh, to install monarch gardens all over Kansas City for free, and I did that for a while um, until that grant program ended, and that was wonderful. I built a great network there. Um, I got to do a lot of education on why native plants are important, um, and to sort of wet, uh, you know, wet my appetite on installing native landscapes. Um, and it was it was a truly wonderful experience. And then um, I went on to work for the Kansas Biological Survey from there. Um, And then I started my own business (laughs) while I was at the Kansas Biological Survey. It really grew. I started the business in grad school and um, um, I started to just have more and more folks reach out interested in help managing landscapes and installing native plants and providing for wildlife, um, among many other things. And I did that for free for a while and realized there was enough demand that I needed to make this a career or or help someone else.
1: And so then, how did you go about that? So tell us about, Let I'll tell you what, let's go to your business now. Oh, so sure. you have hundreds of employees, correct?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I wish, yeah. Uh, it's just me and my partner in life and my partner in business, Ryan. Um, we do have interns and sort of seasonal folks who come through and they've all been amazing. Um, our goal right now is to is to increase our capacity to do more work, so we have to build a bigger team. Um, so we recently transitioned into a nonprofit, which would have made sense all along. Uh, we just didn't know. I've, I started the business on my own and I don't have anybody around me who can help guide that process. So I, um, I started as an LLC. That's how a lot of folks know about our work, Native Lands LLC, but we converted to a nonprofit with the help of our board um, at the beginning of this year. So we're now Native Lands Restoration Collaborative and what what is the job? What is the work? Oh, there's so much to it. We always say, if it's something related to native plants, we do it. But ultimately native lands um, restores native landscapes to publicly accessible spaces. And every part of that is important. Um, and we do that with the community. So there's hardly anything that we do out in the field that's not open to the public. Um, and we're inviting volunteers in to join us to be land stewards and to learn how to um, do this work in their own communities, or to um, to caretake these spaces. Um, so it's educational every step of the way. And uh, we just uh, we try to focus our work on public spaces because in this state, as you likely know, <laughs> there's so little publicly accessible land that we'd love for truly everyone who can get outside to have access to a native landscape. Well,
1: so what you're doing is you are preserving and restoring prairie because Kansas right. is a prairie state, correct? Like
2: That's right. So well, we, we, we we were in the ocean. Uh, yeah. You know, we were an ocean. There, yeah. uh-huh. <laughs> right. Um, so I guess I could say I've just gone full circle, right? I'm back. I'm back on the beach. Um, <laughs> well, yes, you're right. Most of what we do is prairie focused because most of Kansas was prairie um, in Douglas County, Jefferson County, Johnson County, where we do most of our work. Those counties were over 90 percent prairie. So but we do restore um, riparian woodlands, um, oak hickory woodlands. We also work in wetlands some and we'll be doing even more of that into the future, any native landscape that would have been here. Um, our job is to is to help locate these spaces, work with the land managers to to take care of these spaces and to bring the community in so that they can appreciate and love these spaces too. Um, and a lot of that is prairie, you're right.
1: Well, what I see when you talk about restoring the prairie, I I live in Lawrence too, and I drive into yeah. the station in Kansas City, and I drive past Acres of red cedar, because right. apparently people own this land. They own acres, and then they don't do anything with it, and so right. it reverts to red cedar. Right, and that isn't maybe the best thing to grow on on the the plains. Right, right. So, right. That's, so that's red what cedar, you're, doing. you're restoring. restoring.
2: Uh-huh. Right. So we try to bring the diversity of the prairie back. And you're right that whether it be red cedars or um, another woody species that has started to encroach on a prairie space, sometimes even um, herbaceous species like a uh, Chinese bush clover or Sericea lespidiza are our focal species. Um, but you're right with the absence of fire on the landscape, which was the, the main disturbance that kept the prairie open historically. With the absence of fire, um, trees of all sorts are a major threat to what's left of the prairie. Well, thank you, Courtney. That's
1: a very good segue for when we come back after break, listeners, we're going to talk about why there is a need to preserve the prairie, protect and restore the prairie from what. So. Give us a minute to do a few public service announcements and we will be right back.
3: Would you care for nitrous oxide this morning? Or would you like a little CO2 and toast? some ozone over easy if the lead has made you queasy these aren't the things of which utilities are apt to boast global warming feels so nice in the morning, uh, but it gets a bit oppressive by midday the polar bears are dying amphibians are frying but we have electric blowers to blow our leaves away if what we do is legal, then we should not be concerned. The GOP's not worried about the coal we have to burn. So would you care for nitrous oxide this morning? Or would you like a little CO2 and toast? Some sulfur with your tea, a little mercury. It's the cost of the conveniences that you and I love most. A goodbye East Coast.
4: Hello, this is Joseph Jackson. Join me on Calton Conversations, where we will discuss matters that impact your life as a resident of the Kansas City metropolitan area. Every Thursday morning at 9 a.m., right after Democracy Now! KKFI is hiring. We are now accepting applications for a bookkeeper office administrator position at KKFI's offices at 39th and Main in Midtown Kansas City. This is a full-time, 32-hours-per-week position that is responsible for supporting the administrative and financial needs of our growing organization. For more details, including required skills and how to apply, please go online to kkfi.org forward slash jobs.
5: Good news, good planet. It's time now for your good news for a good planet. Seven Sustainable Cities. In a quest to become fully sustainable, the European Union is launching a sustainability project called City Loops to find new ways to reduce pollution and reuse existing resources. The project is being rolled out in seven pilot cities across the continent, each focused on different problems and their potential solutions. Seville, Spain, and Mikel, Finland, are focused on minimizing water waste and promoting better use of biowaste. In Porto, Portugal, they're working to reduce food waste and streamline food donation processes for local businesses and organizations. Appledoon in the Netherlands is pioneering a circular street made of recycled materials for benches, parking lots, and green spaces. Bodo Norway and two sites in Denmark are focused on the construction sector, where a former concrete company is being carefully dismantled to maximize reuse of its materials into public parks and housing. The program continues until 2023, when the ideas implemented will be evaluated and the best ones scaled up across Europe. The goal is to create a circular economy, one that reuses as much waste as possible and creates value from what does go to waste. It's a goal to balance the immediate needs of today without compromising the needs of tomorrow. And this is Mandy from GoodNewsGoodPlanet.com.
1: Hello, this is Terry Wilkie. You're listening to Eco Radio KC, and I'm lucky to talk to Courtney Masterson of Native Lands, LLC.
2: So we're now Native Lands Restoration Collaborative. Courtney, when we broke off, we were
1: talking for a little bit about why there is a need to preserve the prairie. Now then, what's Europe? I know the statistics, and I'm not going to give the actual numbers, but once upon a time, 99% ninety nine percent of Kansas was covered with prairie grasslands. And currently, what do you think it's fifty percent or no, it's even less than that because any farmland is no longer prairie, really, isn't that true? right?
2: Right. So I mean it, it the the percent will vary by county as you head across the state. Um, when you when you head into western Kansas, there may be more preserved prairie. there's less. Agricultural land use. When it comes to crop use out there, there's less water available um, on this side of the state. Um, you know, Douglas County, we have less than one percent left. Um, similar amounts in Johnson County. Um, so, it, when you're talking about the most populated areas of the state, you're you're down to just a just a pittance of is left. Just a really tiny amount. Um, and protecting those spaces, those little remnants, is vitally important to. Um, to protecting uh, the species of the prairie and that plant species, fungal species, animal species, um, and and to our understanding of how that ecosystem functioned then historically and now, um, we're still learning about the prairie all the time. And so each of these remnants is truly valuable um, uh, scientifically, but also culturally. Um, The landscape was everything to the people who lived here you know, um, for thousands of years before uh, it was settled by Europeans a couple hundred years ago. So I mean, um, food, medicine, shelter, fiber, dye plants—you um, know, culturally significant plants—and um, we don't understand, you know, half of what's going on out there. I and mean, we've lost so much knowledge because of um, because of the loss of the indigenous knowledge. Certainly
1: okay well let's talk about what has happened to the prairie and i just can't keep my big mouth shut and i've already tipped the Mm -hmm. hand in the intro and stuff it's due to urban sprawl we have more people we develop more areas for housing for cities for roads yes and then certainly farmland kansas has hundreds of years as a grower of wheat and anyone that has plowed up fields to grow wheat and soybeans that destroys the prairie there there's no prairie left but then that prairie could be restored correct and how would a person go
2: about that So yeah I mean you, you've touched on a lot of really important points there we have I mean once the soil's been disturbed to to a a degree. Um, there's some light disturbances that um, leave prairie portions of the prairie intact. But when you're talking about tilling, spraying herbicide, dropping houses on it, building roads, then you've lost your prairie. Um, and, and when we do restoration work for prairies, um, a lot of that focuses on what's left over the remnant prairies. Um, and that's very important, uh, you know, taking what's left of that. Sp- Space, that disturbed prairie space and, and helping it to rejuvenate, to revive, bringing a lot of the species back that have been lost. Um, and then another portion of what uh, restoration folks are doing is, is new plantings. And so when you're talking about putting a prairie where the prairie has been completely lost, um, you're building everything from soil structure to plant diversity, and then hoping the animals will come back once the plant diversity is back. But there's a lot that we cannot reinstall. There's a lot of species that can't be planted. They we don't we haven't cracked the code essentially. So um, folks like like Taylor Creek Restoration Nurseries, which is applied ecological services in Baldwin City, they grow hundreds of native species, but. There's 2,000 native species of plants in Kansas. We probably know how to grow, um, you know, a quarter of those species. Um, so when you talk about loss of an ecosystem that once contained many, many hundreds of species, um, and not, and being able only to restore, you know, a small section of that, a small um, subset of that, um, that's what we're talking about losing when we lose the remnants, um, species that would no longer exist if we lost all of the original prairie.
1: Well, we, you and I are very lucky because we live in Lawrence. And mm-hmm. so I have been into the herbarium, which is a building that is part of the university's academic structure. <clears throat> and they have a thousand years of dried plant specimens that people have given, mostly county agents, I think, have gone out and collected and thought, well, this is interesting, and they give them to the scientists who study it and identify it and then keep a sample. And that's a remarkable collection. But let alone that, I told you I used to work for agronomy, the state seed lab in Topeka is really a piece of work. I mean, those workers examine seeds with a magnifying glass. And... identify the seeds and try to keep the seeds it's hard to say in these days of climate change there are people who believe they need to put these species in a bunker because it's genetic material correct it's
2: it's our history right Mm mm-hmm you're absolutely right, and that's a big component of what we're what we have to consider when we're doing restoration work for prairies. Is um, where is your plant material coming from, and what's unique about the genetic uh, material from the prairies right here in northeastern Kansas? What makes them special? Um, and when we restore prairies, do we want to add plant material from other portions of the prairie region? So tall grass prairie stretches, you know, from Canada to to Texas. Um, And if anywhere in there, I can get plant material, but do I want to? Um, And and what we're trying to do with most of our restorations is preserve the genetic material that's on that site. Um, When we're doing plantings, we can be a little bit more creative, you know, thinking about, um, do I want to use different genetics? Because climate change may mean that species from Texas or Nebraska or Minnesota may do better here than our own species. And what's what's the implication of that um, when we're talking about planting native landscapes? Do we want to start adding those kinds of variables? So there's a lot of complexity even in plant choice and plant material in the work that we do. I'm um, but I, yeah, the herbarium and the seed libraries, invaluable tools um, that inform our work every day.
1: Well, and then I'm also thinking of our listeners because not everyone living in the broadcast area is aware that there are what would be called native plants because they have existed here for periods of years some can be traced back to have begun here and then there are invasive species. So now, Courtney, you and I have kicked right. that word around already. Let's explain to our listeners what the heck is an invasive species—not the type, but like why call plants that.
2: Right, and I think that's a really important topic. And depending on who you talk to, um, people use the word invasive differently. Gardeners use it differently than ecologists would, and you know, a mammalogist would use it differently than um, than a botanist would. Um, For for the purposes of our work, an invasive species is a non-native species that doesn't um, that skews the balance within an ecosystem. So um, I wouldn't call red cedars invasive, even though they certainly are pushy. They're non-native. If uh, you're talking about a, a plant from a different country like shrub honeysuckle or uh, japanese honeysuckle or chinese bush clover those species um, they were brought here they were introduced by us when we settled this space Um, and they've created um, they've created imbalance in the ecosystem
1: right so thank you for that i'm going to remember that when i wake up the next morning red cedar is not invasive it's simply pushy yeah
2: it's it's <laughs> and, an aggressive and the, native yeah, plant it's aggressive
1: it spreads and mm-hmm. and not many people not many plants can beat it because it shades everything and then they exactly. can't get sun it hogs all the water and exactly. then the invasive species are plants that were brought in and this is this can be accidental it can be on purpose too. the department right. of transportation in kansas spray spread crown vetch on the roadsides as a soil grabber to stop erosion and now then don't we have a heck of a time with vetch which grows very well here you know and uh, it
2: does it likes it here it doesn't have it has hardly any predators it doesn't have any natural pressure on it to keep it in place so it runs amok and um we were just um, at a restoration site this this afternoon, looking at how healthy the crown vetch is this year. It's gonna be a good year for crown vetch. And, and the sad part about most of these introduced species, at least the ones that were intentional, is that they rarely do the job we thought they were going to do Um, so crown vetch does not anchor soil well it covers soil but its root system is shallow Um, and that's true of many of the things we've introduced to try to anchor soil unfortunately we've made a lot of mistakes in a very short period of time (laughs) well it's a
1: beautiful plant i wouldn't plant i wouldn't blame anybody for planting vetch in their flower garden it's a it's a gorgeous flower but then the thing to know is once you plant it, you have to somehow corral it. You have to keep it from yeah. spreading and taking over your entire yard.
2: And right, there- I think that's part of um, what makes us unique when it, when we, in comparison to the indigenous perspective is that we, we rarely are thinking outside of our own yards. And if we don't see something spreading, we think it's okay. Um, but often animals are moving seeds, moving berries, moving parts of the plant and there could be a a natural disaster happening just over the other side of your fence and you just can't see it. Um, We don't think outside of our own lifetimes and that's an issue. We, you know, a lot of the plants that we plant are probably fine while we're there tending them. Um, But as soon as you stop tending it, it can become a disaster.
1: Well, my name's Terry Wilkie, and you're listening to Eco Radio KC and I'm lucky I'm getting to speak with Courtney Masterson. She's an ecologist and the founder of native lands llc and we're talking about preserving and restoring prairie lands and so we're going to take another short break and when we come back courtney perhaps you can pick up on how people can learn more about the prairie where they can see prairie okay happily yeah all right
3: And now for something completely different. Links Mix, Tuesdays, 10 a.m. till noon on 90.1 FM KKFI. Bringing the positive vibes and good tunes every Tuesday morning. A steady roll down Easy Street with me, your wise guy, Easy Ed. We're hitting all musical directions from jazz, soul, rock to blues, funk and hip hop, where we unify genres and connect the artist with the listener with facts, stories, and a chill atmosphere. We have ride on grooves, spinning wax, and motivating beats that'll guarantee to get your foot tapping. Get your morning started every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. by taking a cruise down Easy Street. The
4: 75th anniversary of the Nakba will be commemorated May 20th from 6 to 9 p.m. at the Islamic Society of Kansas City. The Nakba refers to the displacement of many Palestinians in 1948 as a result of the creation of the State of Israel. The evening will include a Middle Eastern dinner as well as recollections from local Palestinians. Tickets and information are available at cjme.org. This event is sponsored by Friends of Palestine KC. This message is a public service of KKFI. Here's a calendar for the week of 5/15/23. Wednesdays 4 to 6 p.m. and Saturdays 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. walk-in volunteer with KC Farm School at 4223 Gibbs Road, Kansas City, Kansas. farmers market season has started. USDA localfoodportal.com to find one near you. Get ready for Monarch Butterflies. Citizen scientist opportunities are available at monarchwatch.org. Wednesday, May 17th, 6 p.m., the leadership team from Climate Action KC will join Green Drinks and Sierra Club for an insight into how the organization works and how you can get involved. Please join them for an engaging talk. You must sign up through Meetup. Thursday, May 18th, 8.30 to 11.30 a.m. Volunteer with Powell Gardens Conservation Crew. The volunteer activities vary seasonally. Training and tools will be provided. Pal Gardens is located at 1609 Northwest 50 Highway, Kingsville, Missouri 64061. Visit PowellGardens.org. Saturday, May 20th, 9.30 to 12.30 p.m., Eco's Nature Club at Anita B. Gorman Conservation Discovery Center, 4750 Truist Avenue, KCMO. You can register at greenworkskc.org. Saturday, May 20th, 8 to 11 a.m., Calorie Pair Buyback will be at Lenexa Farmers Market, 17201 West 87th Street Parkway, Lenexa, Kansas. Sunday, May 21st, 1 to 4 p.m. Puppet and Mass Workshop for the Blue Planet Handmade Parade. You can join the family-friendly Puppet and Mass making Workshop with the Stone Lion Puppet Theater at... 2400 east truman road suite 100 in kansas city missouri stay involved enjoy the spring check your local political events for environmental issues my name is phil bauer thanks for listening to eco radio kc
1: this is terry wilkie we're back i'm talking to courtney masterson about restoring and preserving prairies all right so courtney if a person wanted to see a prairie, where would you recommend they go? You take your turn first and then I, I have my <laughs> I have my favorite.
2: They're all great. Um I I was on a prairie yesterday. That's one of my favorites though. Um, Kansas Land Trust protects a prairie called Aiken Prairie. Um, The Aiken family uh, put an easement on the prairie to protect it with Kansas Land Trust. And it's open to the public, uh, sun up to sundown every day of the week. And it's just just outside of Lawrence, on the east side of Lawrence. It's absolutely gorgeous remnant prairie. um, Really, really sensitive. Um, conservative species of plants there. Um, great bird watching, bird listening. Um, it's really starting to bloom now, so you should head out to check that one out. Well,
1: th- thank you. And what I was going to say, I like the Flint Hills Prairie Preserve. Oh and yeah. And i I graduated K State, and imagine my surprise the first time I went walking across the Flint Hills. I just from the car or tractor i just thought it was grass i didn't realize yeah. when you get down and walk in it everything is a flower
2: it yeah, so, there's It's there's so really much in it.
1: beautiful
2: and it's absolutely I, stunning
1: right i really recommend people to the there is the Kanza prairie in manhattan kansas that's got a nice walking trails just beautiful and you not only see beautiful prairie but you see a few people. If you're the kind of person that doesn't like to be out in the middle of nowhere, then you'll see other people, and then that can be reassuring. And then the Absolutely. Flint Hills Nature Preserve is its huge. There's some talk about turning that into a national park, isn't there? Or don't we hope?
2: I think so. I think so, um, and I'd love to see that happen. Uh, we don't have enough grassland national parks, and uh, I think they're truly important. And like you said, I think most people, unfortunately in the Midwest, drive by prairie and they can't see it. They can't see the fine detail. Um, and I know that sounds silly <laughs> to people who are listening who have never been in a prairie. Um, pull over, step step out of your car and step into a prairie and you'll see that it's not just grass hiding in there, it's full of wildflowers. And um, you don't have to drive far, no matter where you live, to see a prairie. Um, if you check Kansas City Wildlands' uh, website, they have a list of places they protect and restore. Kansas Land Trust has a list of prairies that are public that you can go and see. Um, We're building prairies, uh, prairie, you know, um, planting new prairie in in Kaw River State Park. Um, There's several parks in Lawrence that have prairie. Um, You don't have to drive far outside of town and and many of these are beloved spaces. Um, Prairie Park, for instance, in Lawrence, very heavily visited prairie um, and very special to a lot of people, full of wildflowers.
1: There was an event in Lawrence, Kansas on April 27th. That's two weeks ago
2: now. And Mm -hmm. um,
1: Courtney, what do you know about that?
2: (laughs) There's a lot going on with with that right now. So Prairie Park uh, is a park on the east side of Lawrence, um, just as you come in town from K-10. And um, it's a very special remnant prairie. Um, It was protected finally um, in the 90s Um, It was slated to be a parking lot um, and instead, um, community experts uh, like Kelly Kincher and several others um, advocated for the protection of the prairie um, and Prairie Park Nature Center was built next door uh, to the prairie instead. Um, And and the prairie became a featured um, educational space for the nature center. Um, It's owned and, and managed by the city of Lawrence in our parks and rec department. Um, unfortunately, they accidentally sprayed the entire five acre remnant prairie with broadleaf herbicide a couple of weeks ago. And um, uh, it was a community member, Ken Lassman, who's a naturalist and author um, in, in this area who, who made me aware of it. And he'd gone out to take pictures for the Kaw Valley Almanac that he writes Um, and he saw the wilting plants and called me immediately. Um, From that point on, it's just been a series of sort of heartbreaks. Um, People visiting, um, uh, botanists and ecologists going out to try to assess what's going on and make species lists and to watch um, the landscape change due to the herbicide use over time. Um, We're working with City of Lawrence Parks and Rec Department now to come up with a plan for how to protect what's left after the herbicide damage um, and, and work to bring some of that diversity back if, if it's lost um, and there's a, a great deal of effort that goes into that um, but we're we're in communication and i do hope that the city um, and all of us that every land manager in the area will learn from what's happened there um, and the kansas biological survey um, k-state extension um, several um, land management um, and conservation organizations are coming together to provide the community an education around this loss um, and to try to heal the space together in a lot of ways.
1: Well, I'm glad you talked about healing the space. I was at the radio last Monday, just a week ago, and there was a remarkable event that was yes. a healing the prairie ceremony. Would you say a few words about that? Who, who was there, who had to do with it, and what what kind of prayers were said?
2: Oh, it was it was a really beautiful event. Uh, ultimately, it was um, a healing gathering. Um, so, folks from from many different backgrounds, um, of many different religious beliefs, and and you know, and connections with the land, came together. There was at least two hundred and twenty folks there from the surrounding communities. Um, there were speakers to share. Um, connection with the land, to share healing words, and to bring people together. Um, uh, Speakers included uh, Dan Wildcat from, he's an author um, and educator at Haskell Indian Nations University. Um, Ken Lastman uh, spoke uh, about reconnecting with the prairie plants. Um, There's a I, I spoke a little bit about how the plant community was responding to the herbicide. Um, there was uh, some absolutely beautiful um, um, singing and and um, just uh, folks from local tribes came to connect us to the landscape and to call our attention to um, uh, this, this type of loss happening all over the world. Um, and then finally, um, Karen Miriam Goldberg, an absolutely wonderful poet. She was um, who, Poet
1: Laureate of Kansas. Yeah, Poet
2: Laureate, absolutely. Um, uh, shared a, a new poem of hers, um, focusing on, on the loss at Prairie Park, but also the hope of seeds and how, um, how we can place our hope in, in restoration work and our connection with the plants, um, absolutely stunning. Um, I'm sure you'll be able to find it. <laughs> Give yourself a good Google on Karen Miriam Goldberg. Right, poem. maybe somebody had their self self video going. I simply live
1: in Lawrence and read the newspaper, the Lawrence Journal <laughs> World, every day. So I heard about. I read about the event, and I read carefully every word that was reported and so the head of the parks and rec department admitted that it was pasture guard that's a brand name for a broadleaf herbicide and that means listeners that it kills plants that have broad leaves as opposed to grasses it leaves grasses in place and then the city also admitted that they had been in the practice of spot spraying the 5 acre prairie reserve at uh, at the prairie park and the reason they did the spot spraying in my imagination now this was not in the journal world but probably bindweed which is an outlaw weed it's a noxious weed and yeah it was ceresia and, the, and the, <laughs> yeah right well ceresia <laughs> is not necessarily noxious yet and so there are a few ways to remove those weeds. You could hoe them, cut them with a machete. You could, you'd could, you have to hoe year after year several times a year, or you could spray them with a chemical. And the spot spraying where it kills just the invasive plant might be actually good for the prairie because otherwise the bindweed would grow over all the other plants. It's invasive, it would win uh, the battle of who's going to grow here. And then for some reason, which the city, I did not hear them admit how or why. I didn't hear them say it was a mistake. I didn't hear them say they forgot. I didn't hear them say they were trying a new plan. They just really didn't say anything to the reporter to give anyone a half an idea of why they would kill this five acres of prairie and yet at the same time also being reported in the paper, the city has an interest in closing the Prairie Park Conservation Center, which is a lovely building and a place that's open to the public any day of the week. It's kind of a park. And um that that news is a year ago, their their interest in closing it down, but then to damage what is there would help. I'm very glad that the people reacted strongly and said, "Oh no, we care about this place." I hope that the city is hearing that loud and clear. I,
2: I hope they. I hope they are, and I can share some updates on. Um, so, after after the Parks Department's initial press release um, on, you know, essentially stating this is this is business as usual. Um, they they sort of stepped back and, uh, and admitted fault and that it was a mistake that they sprayed the entire thing um it took them several days to do that and sort of freaked us all out <laughs> um, we were a little disappointed in their initial reaction um, but they were after Ceresia lespedeza which is a state-listed noxious weed category c uh noxious weed Um, and in our county in douglas county it's a a noxious weed as well so they are required to manage it but it was a month too early um, and the wrong methodology broadcast spraying for Ceresia is not the appropriate way especially in a remnant prairie so um, that's part of our role native lands restoration collaborative is providing that education to land managers including our parks and rec department so hopefully we'll be able to sustain a meaningful relationship with them. We've been working with them for years. Um, I, I have to believe it was a mistake. I don't know how how we could have gotten this far off track in in how to manage a remnant prairie but they they don't have a lot of remnant prairie to manage and uh, um, they're learning hopefully it'll hopefully it'll get better in the future. We're going to be pushing for positive constructive change um, within the parks department and countywide. Well,
1: I've been talking to the Parks Department for a while about how they handle roadsides and various weeds and so they mow and spray. And they do that from April until November now with the longer growing season. And then when they talk to me, they're talking to an old lady who spent a lot of time hoeing bindweed in the foundation fields And we would go out there, I would get a crew of college students, imagine that, a real life job where people could be paid to (laughs) take a mechanical device and kill this weed growing. And it was effective. It worked very well. It has to be repeated. And it's very easy to sit in an air-conditioned cab and simply spray. I think that that is part, I think that that's part of the problem. But... Before we go out, Courtney, let's say a few bad words about herbicides. Now uh, then, don't, do you agree with me? Herbicides cause neurological disorders in people. So-
2: Some do, yeah,
1: hmm When you spray them and they can drift and then they can damage neighbors' orchards and sensitive plants. Yes, and they can. And all in all, we need to be more careful with our application of chemical do you agree with me
2: i think we do and i that's part of the the a, a big part of the takeaway from what happened at prairie park but certainly happening every day that uh, um herbicides aren't necessarily a bad tool we just need to be using them responsibly use them as they're labeled and only use them for the thing you're targeting um, so if you're targeting an invasive species that should be the only plant that's damaged from from your work um lespidiza should be spot sprayed um, many of the invasive species that we've mentioned today that's the same that's the same story um, there's certainly timing is very important and concentration of herbicide is important Um, But you're right, applying herbicide on its own is hazardous to the person applying it and potentially to folks around if you're spraying on a windy day, which should just never be happening.
1: And then give us a website for you or somehow where people can see Ceresia lepsidesia, because that's impossible to say. It is an imported plant. It was brought in, uh, uh, they think on shipping boats, I think. And it yeah. grows very well. It's hard to, it's hard for me to describe exactly what it looks like, but it grows upright. It's about it two or two feet tall. It's got a yeah, stem. Mm-hmm.
2: It's a. It gets pretty fibrous late in the season. It gets a few feet tall um, when it's happy. Uh, it is a legume. It has a compound leaf, three leaflets. Um, it's an erect plant. Um, and it has not very showy flowers, uh, little white, little cream-colored flowers. Uh, usually, you know, hot the hot part of summer um, is when it blooms. It is. You can find information on Ceresia lespedeza by googling Chinese bush clover. Uh, if you're interested in how in our state um, you're required to manage it, you can just Google State of Kansas Chinese bush clover or you know, noxious weed Chinese bush clover. It comes up. Um, it's it's a, a species that's quite difficult to manage without herbicide, um, especially up here in northeastern Kansas, where most folks can't use um, heavy grazing to knock something back, or um, you know, repeatedly mowing and mowing and mowing. Um, their, herbicide is your final tool when it comes to sericea. Um and so a lot of us have to learn how to use it responsibly. Okay, so tell our
1: listeners how to get a hold of you if they have acreage that they would like to reclaim and restore.
2: Oh, I'd love to talk to people. Um, the best way to get a hold of me is either through our social media, which you can find um, Facebook or Instagram. It's Native Lands NativeLandsKS, um, or we have our own website, NativeLandsKS.org, and just reach out any of those ways. We'd be happy to help. Well, I wanna
1: thank you for talking with us, Courtney. I'm I'm really awestruck. I I think you just do a fabulous job and I appreciate everything you do. So thank you for being on Eco Radio KC.
2: Thank you sincerely, Terry. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to KKFI. Be sure to like and
0: follow your community radio station on social media at KKFI 901 FM, as we are now adding new content to our social media sites every day. And thank you again for supporting this station since 1988.
6: I'm Dr. Anthony Lisewitz and this is Climate Connections. These old school buses spew dirty tailpipe pollution that harms the climate and kids' lungs. So there's a growing push for school districts to switch to clean electric buses. Ian Elder of Jobs to Move America, a research and advocacy group, says that as this transition happens, it's important to protect the workers who could be affected. That starts with manufacturing. There's really a robust school bus manufacturing industry in the U.S. Until recently, all school buses have been essentially made in the U.S., But EV batteries and components are currently primarily manufactured overseas. So Elder says it will be important to grow the industry here in the U.S. and create high-quality union jobs that sustain families and communities. At the local level, he says school district mechanics, who are experienced with diesel buses, will need training to work on EVs. Electric vehicles are entirely different, and they require different skills, and there's a big training gap. So he says that as governments develop programs to help districts invest in electric buses, they should also commit to building domestic supply chains and ensuring that workers receive adequate training so the transition can benefit everyone. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org.
0: My name is Darnell. At the end of our hour, here is some environmental news for the week of May 15th, 2023. Democracy Now! reports... An unprecedented heat wave fueled by the climate crisis has shattered temperature records across Southeast Asia. Spain reported its hottest and driest April on record. Wildfires are raging across Siberia and tens of thousands of people have been forced to evacuate their homes in Alberta, Canada due to wildfires. A new study finds a glacier in northwest Greenland is melting faster in climate models predicted, which indicates global sea levels may rise quicker than previously believed. The Biden administration agreed to conservative Democrat Senator Joe Manchin's plan to expedite the approval of fossil fuel projects. The White House said the endorsement of Manchin's plan was in exchange for speeding up the construction of new transmission lines for renewable energy, which are needed to meet Biden's climate goals. EcoWatch reports. Toxic polyfluoroalkyl substance, PFAS, forever chemicals, have been found in everything from products like cleaners, cosmetics, grease-resistant food packaging to air, water, and soil, as well as human blood. Now, some of the most commonly used food pesticides in the United States have been found to be contaminated with these dangerous chemicals. The first polyvolta PV solar farm to connect directly to the UK's national grid transmission network has started generating power. The project links a 49.9 megawatt solar array to the national grid's 400 kilovolts iron action substation near Bristol, England. The EPA has released a wide ranging new proposal for limits on greenhouse gas emissions from coal and gas fired power plants. If finalized, the new rule will be the first time the federal government has restricted carbon dioxide emissions from existing power plants, which generate about a quarter of the country's emissions. Inside Climate News Reports. The units at a Houston-area Shell refinery that caught fire this weekend repeatedly malfunctioned in recent years without recourse from Texas regulators. Since early 2022, Shell reported at least four malfunctions at the one olefin unit in Deer Park petrochemical refinery that had resulted in thousands of pounds of illegal pollution but no fines or citations. These units separate hydrocarbons into the components of plastics. The Sustainability Action Newsletter reports, Soon, Americans will be able to purchase only LED lights from retailers across the nation as an official ban on incandescent light bulbs will be in full effect. The Trump administration had slowed an earlier phase out of incandescent bulbs. The DOE claims that discontinuing insufficient incandescent lights will cut planet warming carbon emissions. LED lights provide more light using 75% less energy than incandescent lights and last about 25 times longer. Nature Energy Reports Plugging thousands of oil and gas wells that sit idle in the Gulf of Mexico could cost up to $30 billion. The findings represent the most comprehensive academic inventory to date of the 14,000 wells in the Gulf and along its marshy coastland that are no longer producing oil and gas. But have not been plugged by their owners. Idle oil and gas wells are at a higher risk of ending up abandoned, pose environmental risks, and can leak methane, a potent greenhouse gas. Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. Please tune in next week or listen to our podcast at any time.
6: Put up
0: a parking lot. Thank you for listening to Eco Radio KC on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio. Eco Radio is brought to you each week by a team of collaborators, including me, Craig Lugo, Terry Wilking, Brent Risedale, Bob Grove, and Dave Mitchell.
1: The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and guests and not of KKFI and or the Mid-Coast Media Project. You can find our calendar and a podcast of each show on Eco Radio KC's Facebook page, as well as on our show page at kkfi.org. This is
0: Richard Major. And you can send inquiries and comments to our email at kkfi.org forward slash contact or message us on our Facebook page.
1: Up next is Fiesta Musicale, followed by Noche Magica. Our outro music is Big Yellow
0: Taxi by Jody Mitchell.
5: Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone?